From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, you're a relatively young man and a young father, but are you one of those people who's already organizing your affairs for when you retire? First of all, you're very kind. But to answer your question, I try to save, but I always feel like I could be doing more. Well, don't we all? But listen, planning for old age is getting more complicated. Our guest today talks about the established three stages of life, childhood, working life, retirement. I guess there's a fourth, which is death. But anyway, these three stages breaking down. We're living longer. And if we remain healthy, there's lots of choices. So I always thought I would stop work as soon as I could get my pension. But now I'm thinking I might work in some shape or form for money. Yes, but also to stay intellectually active. As I say, big choices. Indeed. And I hope this discussion gives me some ideas. Welcome to our podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Janet. Looking forward to talking about longevity. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your childhood, where you're educated, and how you came to be an economist focused on longevity. Yeah, it seems right, doesn't it, when you talk about longer life to start at the beginning, doesn't it? So, yeah, I'm a Londoner, or North Londoner, to be more precise. I was born in Enfield, went to school in Edmonton. Uh, and I won a scholarship to a school about an hour away. And the, the, the claim to fame of the school is it produces lots of comedians. But I went on to become an economist. And I'll let the listeners add their own punchline to that one. And uh, I got very excited in economics. I think I've always been driven by ideas. But I love ideas that have an impact. I kind of think ideas on their own aren't enough. Uh, and before I went to university, I had to work for a while. And rather than work in the cottage cheese factory or the pub, I... Uh, wrote off and got a job in the Treasury, which was fantastic. It was the time when monetary policy was being taken seriously in terms of monetarism. And that was a fantastic time to see theory, data, and policy. So that kind of got me interested in macro. So I went to study at Oxford, PPE, Philosophy of Economics. Then at the LSC, where I learned how to do maths and economics. And then I had a fellowship at All Souls in Oxford, which gave me the freedom to sort of think more broadly. But I was always really interested in the traditional stuff you think macroeconomists are are about. So most of my career, I spent working on monetary and fiscal policy and booms and recessions. And then sort of around 50, I changed. I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. One was, and Janet used to work as an economic journalist, there's only so many years you can talk about whether interest, interest rates are going up or going down. After a while, it gets just a little bit routine. I also think, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the purpose of longer lives, but you discover actually who you are as well. And I realise, well, I'm, I'm big picture. I'm about big multidisciplinary topics rather than more specific things like central banking. And then, you know, my parents have passed. My children were behaving very differently from me. And it makes you a little bit philosophical. So I just started thinking about longevity. And here at the school, business school, I, I would give a lecture on an aging society. And there's a slide in that. And it's, you know, it's a very standard story, the aging society. I've, I've been told it since I was an undergraduate. We've got a problem. There's more old people. Old people get sick. Uh, they need a pension. They're a burden. They're a problem. And that's bad for the economy. And there was a slide halfway in that presentation that just said, on average, we're living longer and we're healthier for longer. And I just sort of stopped to that point and thought, well, how do we turn that into just a resolutely bad news story? That sounds positive. And that just got me thinking about longevity and how we adapt to longer lives. Uh, I wrote The 100 Year Life, my colleague Linda Grattan uh, from our OB department here. And it was, uh, you know, a, a book thinking about the implications for careers and how you structure your life. 
And it became this sort of huge global bestseller, which was great. But it got me out and about meeting all sorts of different people. And I thought, right, this is my topic. And this is now where my hardcore research agenda is focused on. And, and for me, you know, this topic is up there with AI, up there with climate change and, you know, the changing global political situation as one of the major trends that we have to face. And what I find extraordinary about this topic is that it's misrepresented. It's always about the burden of being old rather than how do we adapt to longer lives. And I think for me, you know, this is a huge topic. It's multidisciplinary. It's something that most people have got wrong and we need to act on now. And that's kind of why I've got into this extraordinary, interesting topic. So let's focus in on that figure, 100 years. Tell, tell our listeners, if they don't know your book and your, your thesis and your, your thoughts, what is that 100 years about? Yeah, so... I mean, I wanted to write longevity in general, but the 100-year life certainly draws people's attention. So there's been spectacular increases in life expectancy. Now, when I first started writing about this, I found demographers very unenthusiastic about the concept of life expectancy. And, and now I tend to agree with them because there are a whole bunch of reasons. This is a complicated topic. And the chances of any one of us actually living exactly as long as life expectancy are pretty small. In fact, most people, by the way, live longer than average life expectancy. So there's a, even a problem there. But there have been these spectacular improvements in life expectancy. And the, and the, the best way of documenting that is a, a concept called best practice life expectancy that Jim Vorpal and Colthus came up with. And it looks around the world at any point in time, which country has the highest life expectancy at birth? And currently it's Japan, uh, 87. And what they show is over the last 100, 150 years, in every decade, on average, life expectancy has increased by two or three years. Quite remarkable. And it's, you know, it's almost linear. You know, all the things that are happening, world wars, pandemics, over time, there's this sort of two, three year increase every 10 years. And that's remarkable. Now, of course, if you project that forward unchanged, you get extraordinary life expectancy. So you get the result that in high income countries, the vast majority of children born today will live to be over 100. Lots of debate. Can we expect those trends of two or three years every 10 years to increase? I think probably not. I think we're probably going to see something like one year every decade. But even if you use one year in every decade, you have very high probabilities of living to your 90s or 100. Uh, you know, looking at the UK government data, and the UK is by no means good at life expectancy compared to many other countries. A newborn female in the UK has a life expectancy of 90, and that's assuming a slowing down of future trends. Have a one in four chance of making it to 99 and a one in five chance of making it to 100. So, you know, there's a realistic probability now of living to 100. And the expectation in terms of the median person is you'll reach into your early 90s. And that's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And I, I will come back to this question was like, do we actually want to live that long? And, and, and then we get into the health um, and living healthily issue. But I just want to go back to this twist that you've given that why is longevity, why is aging always negative? So I've seen a lot of figures, trillions, which is the dividend from this rising longevity. Um, and I, I'd love to know which figure that you would put on it. Yeah, so there's a lot. So, you know, there's a lot of people trying to sort of make this a positive topic. And I, I think that's a good thing. We shouldn't be, you know, Longer lives are better than the alternatives. This is one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century. There's you know, fewer children snatched away in infant life, fewer parents snatched away in midlife, more grandparents meeting their grandchildren. I think this has the foundations of being a good thing. But 
we are remorsely negative. And I think that's because we underestimate the capacity of older people in our later years. And in lots of ways, there's just that ageism. Uh, and it's remarkable when you tell people, actually, older people tend to be happier than people in their 40s and 50s, for instance. For me, the numbers is a key one. And I want to quantify things. And for me as an economist, there's three ways you can try and quantify the advantages of healthier longevity. One which everyone's very keen on and I'm not is how much money would we save if we're not spending money on dementia and hip replacements and things of that form. You know, if we could be healthier for longer, we wouldn't have all those those problems. I, I find that the wrong way of looking at the problem because, you know, if we can come up with a cure for dementia that costs twice as much as what we currently spend on looking after dementia patients, I'm all in. I mean, you know, we're fine the money. So I think that's a, that's a wrong way to look at health savings. I think actually... Uh, health expenditure will carry on rising, health becomes ever more important. And the longer we live, the more important health becomes to us. So let's rule that one out. So another one is what's a boost to GDP. And I'm kind of working on that, but actually we haven't got a good model of how, you know, working for longer, being healthier for longer, educating longer will affect the economy. But it's substantial. Later on, we'll probably talk about, you know, if you can get more people aged 50 to 65 working, you're talking about four or five percentage points of GDP every year. But I still think that's not the right way of looking at it. And the way I've done it so far is to say, well, we just value health and we value life. Let's use economic tools that place a value on health to come up with how much we should appreciate living longer, but also living longer in better health. And it's staggering numbers. You know, I, I've done some work with David Sinclair at Harvard and Martin Ellison from Oxford that says, if you could slow down how you age biologically, such that you had one more year of life expectancy and all the diseases that you get with old age come later because you've slowed down your biological aging clock. It's worth between $37 trillion and $50 trillion for the United States alone. That's in present value terms. But that's the welfare gains. And you know, if you look at it more closely, basically it works out at about 3 or 4% of GDP for one year of life expectancy every year. And, you know, I'll, I'll come back to that headline number, 37 to 50 trillion, and just come back to COVID. You know, during COVID, we took steps to shatter the economy that lowered GDP by three or four percentage points and saved about one year of life expectancy. And we value life. We value health. It is the most valuable thing. And so those numbers we come up with, they sound huge because health is the most valuable thing to us. As we're living longer, the biggest health challenge is age-related diseases. And if we can do something about it, the gains are enormous because there's loads of old people. And, you know, the point I think is important to stress here is that we've never had this situation before. We've never had the chance of the young becoming old be so high, such that now our biggest health problem is age-related diseases. And we've never had so many old people. And put those two together, and we have a new priority for society, which is to tackle how we age and to age better. So just um, before we go on to the broader picture, you mentioned GDP and, and it had occurred to me, how well does GDP measure any of this stuff that you're talking about? I think it's a great question. And I think the you know, first thing is, because health is valuable to us, GDP may not capture that. And as COVID is the greatest example there where we decided to lower GDP because it was better for our health. So it's clear that in some ways GDP doesn't capture everything. We know that. And certainly, I think the more we have an aging society, the more we have older people who are not working, the more crucial it is to have healthy life expectancy as a measure of how well the welfare of a country is. 
And it's interesting if you look at healthy life expectancy, how badly UK and US do, for instance, compared to many other high-income countries. But it's going to be utterly key because if we are all, or the majority of us now, living these longer lives, that healthy life expectancy is key. Because if you talk to people, how do you feel about getting old? They say, as long as I'm healthy, as long as I've got purpose and engagement. And that healthy life expectancy number is now key. So, yes, GDP is not going to capture that. But I also think that, you know, the challenge we've got at the moment is there's three dimensions of longer lives. We've got one already. We do already have longer lives. We've got to make sure our health catches up with those longer lives. And we've got to make sure our productive potential extends, because then we can finance those longer lives. And those are those three key dimensions, living longer, in better health, and more productive for longer. And the trouble with the ageing society story is it assumes you can't change how people age health-wise and you can't pick people more productive. And so it only focuses upon changes in the age structure of the population. Whereas for me, if we're living these longer lives, we have to change how we age. And, you know, I'm 58, kind of important to sort of put that on the table and talk about longevity. And if my life expectancy is 92, then I'm going to behave very differently than if my life expectancy is 70. And it's that that we've got to try and adapt to. Because for the first time ever in human history, the young, middle age and expect to become the very old. So if we do age better, I think we're seeing healthy life expectancy, but that will, I think, also pay for itself in terms of GDP. It's interesting that personally, I'm just turned 63. If I share my parents' history, my father died suddenly at age 60. My mother died well into her 90s after three years of being bedridden with dementia and Alzheimer's, neither of which were ideal. No. And that shapes your attitudes. My attitude is partly, I can't wait to retire so that I can go traveling, but I'll have to freelance or something to finance lovely wildlife photography holidays. So you start thinking, I want to stop. And then you start thinking, but I won't be able to afford it. And then you start thinking, but will I be bored? So are attitudes changing among people, not seeing just that retirement age, that official retirement age when you can get your pension? Are people changing their attitudes, do you think? Definitely. I think you will, we've already seen a really, really big shift around retirement. And actually, you know, I I'm always very muddled by how much time to spend talking about retirement for two reasons. The first is that the notion that there is a single date where everyone comes to a hard stop of work is becoming less and less apparent. And in fact, if you look at the the, the employment data by age, there's no big jump down at the state pension age. And there's two reasons that the first is a lot of people leave work before from 50 onwards. And actually, I think that's a really big challenge for a longevity society. We're not giving people health skills, tackling ageism and flexible work that is needed to keep people working from 50 to state pension age. So just raising the state pension age does nothing to keep people healthy and employable. It just means they've got to carry on working. And then the second thing you're seeing is seeing people doing things very differently after the state pension age, many of them still carrying on working. We have this word now called unretirement, where lots of people retire and they unretire. And for me, I think what you saw in the 20th century is the creation of a three-stage life. We saw the creation of a world of education, a career structure, and then retirement. We invented teenagers in the 20th century. My dad was never actually a teenager. He was born in 1925. He was working at 14. He was never a teenager in the cultural sense. He went from being a child to being an adult with responsibilities. 
And then we also invented pensioners. And, you know, they, my great-grandparents would never had experience as a pensioner. And as life expectancies increase, what's happened is that we've taken more and more of those years after the retirement age. So we've taken a lot of leisure after the retirement date. I think what we're going to see as lives get longer now is we'll take more leisure this side of retirement, which may mean we work for longer. We may be doing part-time work at the end rather than full-time work. It depends on people's circumstances and needs. But also you'll see people take some breaks beforehand. And we're see- I, you know, you're seeing that. I see you know, people start work not at 21 anymore, which seems to me a kind of smart thing to do in a way. You're seeing people 45, 50 change their jobs and take a break, and maybe for caring, and maybe they lost their job, or it may be voluntary. So I think you're beginning already to see the emergence of a new flexible career path. It's interesting because um, the McKinsey Health Institute has done this healthy ageing survey, and it's very, very clear from the results that older people don't want to just shut up shop. I mean, uh, the factors of individual health that were of above average importance were having a purpose, learning something new, and, and having a balanced stress level. So it, things are already changing, I think. Which brings me to, is ageism still real? And how much is it holding back something that's organically changing? Yeah, so, it's, so I, I mean, going back to the sort of engagement I I use the word productive ageing because I'm an economist, but by productive ageing, I don't necessarily mean working for a salary. If we are living these longer lives, we've got to create a structure and a framework, both as individuals but as a society, that helps us maintain a sense of purpose and a sense of engagement. And we don't. I think I've been reading Simone de Beauvoir's book on Old Age Again recently. It's a brilliant book, and she's so angry. And she says, as a society, we're just not really providing opportunities we just you know she says if all we're doing is saying oh we take care of it with a pension and a housing policy we're missing the point and i think i'll come back to this this root cause of underestimating the capacity of older people and their later years which of course is ageism but by doing that we also don't invest enough in our own future old age because we underestimate our capacity so there definitely is ageism but i'm also got to say that some things are changing And, you know, if I look at the labour market in the 10 years before COVID, amongst the G7, 80% of employment growth came from workers aged over 50. In the European Union, it was 130%. Now, if you think about what's happening in the rich countries, there's hardly any productivity growth. So all GDP growth is coming from employment, and all employment is coming from older people. So there's something already changing that we're not aware of. So I'd like to think that's a change away from age's prejudices or it could just be that actually people are changing how they age we just don't notice it and so these things happen and you know the next two candidates for the u.s presidency are both likely to be old and i'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion as there already is about their age but the very fact that a 80 year old and a 77 year old likely to be competing in the next election suggests that ageism is much more complicated than the simple prejudice of you're old, you can't do some things. So yeah, I think there is change happening, but there's a lot more that needs to occur. As an economist and as somebody interested in economics, it just fascinates me to know whether economic metrics are capturing any of this change. You know, I'm I, I, I'm, I'm in awe of economics. It's a, this wonderful intellectuals topic. It's muscular and powerful. But my goodness, we don't, I think, look at this concept of ageing very well. And what's so interesting is that, you know, as a macroeconomist, 
my whole language is about real variables and nominal variables. And when it comes to age, it's at 65 plus, that's old. And it's remarkable because the really striking thing about aging is diversity. People age very diversely. Some of that's about health and some of it is about just compounding of lifetime opportunities. So really age is not a terribly good indicator of someone's needs, certainly not if you lump them all together as 65 plus. And of course, that's because we focus on chronological measures of age. And you know, it's, it's always important in this area to focus on two additional measures of age. One which I think as economics is a really powerful one is prospective or thanatological age which is how many years can you expect to live? So not how many years have you lived, but how many years can you expect still to live? And because of growing life expectancy, every 58-year-old has now got more years ahead of them than past ones, which means you need to invest in your future. And we can expect 58-year-olds to therefore behave differently. And then the other concept is biological age, which is getting a subject a lot of scientific understanding, advancing quite a lot, which is to understand that, you know, whereas before we have a disease model where you know you get uh, cholera or you get typhoid. Now we're understanding that actually, because we're living these long lives, most of the diseases we get have a common cause, which is age. Uh, they're age-related. The risk of getting cancer, dementia, diabetes, they all rise strongly with age. So what is your biological age? And, and we know in common parlance, you, know, you look good for your age, etc. We We know there are things we can do to age better. And that has to be that focus on biological age and chronological age. But we miss it in economics. And I think that's a really big challenge for policymakers because, you know, all the debate gets down to should we increase the state pension age, which really just is not a very nuanced policy. It's far too blunt and controversial uh, an approach. Yes, it does seem very punitive. My 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 state pension kicks in at 67 and I must say, when that was raised, I was thinking, do you want me to just work until I die? But of course, I could live for another 20 or 30 years. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. And if you're a 20-year-old Danish male, I think you're going to get 72 is your current scheduled state pension age. So. so clearly, there's this scourge of old age-related illnesses, dementia being one of them, with hospitals full of patients. So prevention is clearly important, and you talk a lot about it, but how much of it is actually happening? Yeah, I mean, very, very little, I think. I mean, if you look at the actual budget breakdown, it tends to be a 1% is allocated to preventative health. I think that's a bit of an underestimate because, you know, for things like cancer screening, etc., that would also count as preventative. But it's still a, you know, it's a small minority and a lot less than it needs to be. And this is the great pivot that needs to happen. And it's going to be hard because we have... We have health systems that are based not really around health, they're based around disease, uh, they're based around hospitals, and their notion of intervening when people are young with a disease to keep them alive. And that's not a model that works very well with age-related diseases. We have to prevent people getting age-related diseases. You know, there's there's a number of issues with age-related diseases. One is that they're chronic, not acute, so they're, they're long-lasting, so you can't cure them. But also, you know, once you have one, you tend to then get another one. So you get these multi-morbidities, which leads to all sorts of challenges. And moving away from a really successful health system that's done a great job of getting us to live these long lives to something different, which gets us to age differently, is going to be hard. And some of that is just going to be institutional resistance. You know, if you've got people who succeed at the top of the tree because they've been doing cancer surgeries for all their career, it's going to be hard to say, well, I need to take money away from you and give it to somewhere else. 
I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation about what works. But I think there are a number of things that we can do. Public health clearly has to be at the forefront. We know it's the first line of defence. Public health did a great job in reducing smoking, and I think we need to do a lot more in the future around diet, exercise, uh, obesity and diabetes, all of which are real threats to future health and how we age. And that's going to be a really controversial one because it's going to be about changing people's behaviour. It's going to be about tackling commercial interests. But we did it with smoking. We're going to have to do it again in, in these areas. I think there's some really interesting work happening in the UK, actually, around our digital health. Because we know that preventative screening is really expensive. You know, screen everyone for everything is going to be impossibly expensive. So if you can get a genetic profile of people and find out what they're most susceptible to, then you could focus the screening on those particular conditions. I think that's really going to be a big future area where you're going to get some of the advantages of AI and big data with screening to, so, to help people before they get the disease. Then I think there's a whole bunch of other things. I think, for instance, issues around menopause is going to be really important. It's a critical impact on female health and how people age later in life. So I think focusing on that will be a a really big thing. And then I think there's some interesting developments happening around drugs and science where I don't think we're going to come up with a pill that will cure aging. But it's clear that we are understanding the aging process as a biological process or processes. Mm. And I think there's a lot of scope for treatments that could, well, for instance, really help with things like arthritis. And as we're seeing even recently with dementia. So I think there's scope to sort of be optimistic on some of these measures. It strikes me that going back to public health, you know, campaigns to stop us smoking, lose weight, etc., etc., sometimes come across as, you know, the nanny state and telling us what to do. And and I think it it has to come from people. It's own I, I was a smoker for a long time and in the end it wasn't no nagging from my daughter. It was me who gave up. And I think that's where people knowing that they might live quite a lot longer than they thought is really key because that gives people the motivation to stay healthy. I completely agree with you. I mean I, I I'm just finished my next book and I have this thing called the evergreen imperative in it and there's sort of three very simple statements the first is the data says you're very likely now to live into your 90s the second thing is you worry about getting into your 90s you worry about getting ill running out of money not having relationships not having a sense of purpose so then that leads to the inevitable conclusion of what do you do now to make sure that those bad outcomes are minimised. And you know, that's the key. With more future, we have to invest more in it and take different decisions. Now, that does require a sense of agency. Now, public health can support by making those decisions easier. I mean, you know, I, I struggle with weight and drinking and making the right choices. And you know, you've got to have a good life. You, can, you mustn't sort of just deny yourself everything. Or as, as the old joke goes, it's not, it's not just a long life. It just seems like a long life. But you know, we do have to have a sense of agency. I think that's also going to be another big part of the preventative health. You know, when your phone gives you so much information about your health and how it changes, I think that's going to be a really important part. And once that becomes more of a social norm, you'll start to see those those collective changes of behaviour. So let's get back to um, the financial side of ageing. I mean, obviously, it's one of the big legs. I mean, our Health Institute survey found that there are people who are facing financial hardship who are not well off are much less likely to do some of the things associated with fending off dementia. So like good sleep, balanced diet. So 
there's a health cost to financial insecurity. So how how can we tackle that? Well, let me sort of, as a macroeconomist, say one thing I'm very keen on. I, I'm very keen we don't just increase the state pension age in relation to life expectancy. I think we need to condition the state pension age on healthy life expectancy. And that would change things quite dramatically because it then gives ministries of finance an incentive to invest in healthy life expectancy because they will actually end up getting some return because they're going to delay paying pensions. It also would help people live longer, healthier lives so they can work for longer. Uh, But I think we've just really got to get incentives into the system to make sure that we age more healthily. And right at the moment, that's not the case. Even with drug discovery right now, there's still a great focus on drugs that give a little bit of life at the end of life rather than better health earlier in life. So there's a whole bunch of incentives. And we mentioned earlier about healthy life expectancy rather than GDP. Then the other thing you're focusing on here is inequality. And you know, I said earlier that one of the great things about ageing is diversity. And I think this is kind of one of the really interesting areas of focusing on longevity. Because some of the time it's about saying, hey, this is really, ageing is a really important topic. But the other part of the time is say, well, actually, it's not really age itself that's the issue. You know, some people are going to age really well, got good health, they've got good uh, education, they've got good financial resources. You know, they, they don't need a free bus pass at 60. They're doing absolutely brilliantly. But there's others who haven't had those advantages throughout their life. And one of the challenges that we've got is that we think of everyone over 65 is the same. So they just have a common policy. But we don't think of that at less than 65. And so when you think about health policy, when you think about public health, when you think about labour markets, less than 65, we have a nuanced approach. At older ages, we tend to be, oh, it's everyone the same. And I think we just got to move away from that. I think there's some real issues here because although we are ageist, part of that ageism is lumping everyone together. And we've got to say, well, actually, age isn't really the most important variable when we look at people's decisions, needs and circumstances. Uh, and I think that's the other great thing we're going to discover as more and more people you know, enter 65 plus, just how diverse they are. So I'm in my 60s and I work with some extraordinary bright young people at McKinsey, but I feel that I'm really useful. I mean, I have amazing amount of experience and they tap into that all the time, which is great. But I've read that you have talked about intergenerational workforces, and we definitely have that. But just tell us a bit more about that. What's so great about it? Yeah. And by the way, I was trying to be really hard not to be sort of too positive or negative about anything to do with that. There's, there's, you know, there's pluses and minuses. However, I think, you know, what's nice about the, the question you just asked is that this, if you think about the demographic changes happening in society as a whole, we used to have these demographic pyramids, lots of young people, not many old people. And when we talk about an ageing society, actually what's happening in most countries, not everywhere, is that we're going to see just a lot more age equality. Every age band is going to have roughly the same number of people in. So I think let's catch it in terms of diversity rather than a sort of gerontocracy or whatever starts to happen. Uh, There's definitely changes that have to occur when people live for longer in terms of politics and corporate structures, when people are hanging around for longer. But you do get this scope for age diversity and what we know is that more diverse teams are more innovative you of course you've got to find ways of exploiting 
that age diversity. You can't just assume it happens. So if you're going to have very hierarchical institutions based on tenure, you're probably going to have a problem. You know, Max Planck says science advances one funeral at a time. And, and that'll be a problem if you've got those hierarchies where old generations stay in power and dominate. But if you can find ways of getting, tapping into that intergenerational diversity, you get great outcomes. There was a, a lovely study of academics that found that the most innovative ideas do come from people earlier on in their career. But the most innovative ideas, the most successful ones, come when you take a young researcher with a more experienced researcher and bring them together. Because there's never any one point in time where your brain is best at everything. And you know that's what happens as you get older. Your, your advantages and disadvantages shift and change. So if as a team you can tap into that, you're going to get better outcomes. And you know we sort of know that. We know that Coding skills may be best done by the very young because they're just aware of what's happened and spent more time. But there's other issues that older workers can contribute to and help. The other thing in this topic is there's very there's surprisingly little evidence that productivity is less amongst older workers. It, it depends on the industry. It depends on the sector. But there's this overwhelming concept that older people are less productive and less innovative. But it's really not easily backed out amongst the data. You've you've read you've read my mind because I was going to ask you about productivity, which is MGI's you know longest running topic. I mean, do you think that this more flexible view of of our lifespan and you know not stopping work at sixty seven and breaking down that third age sort of structure that's been imposed, do you think that that will actually raise productivity? Huh. It could do. I, I, I hate to sort of be so vague on that one. For, for me, one of the issues is with a longer life, we do need to work more if we want to preserve a standard of living. And we, we, we just have to earn more. That doesn't mean we have to, you know, we have to be more productive over our lifetime. But it could be that our average productivity over a lifetime is less. So that will all boost GDP relative to what will happen otherwise. But I don't necessarily mean you, know, you have to be at your most productive later on. But I do think creating more flexible forms of work will support people working for longer. And that's already happening. I did some work with Darren Asimoglu at MIT and Nikolai Mulbach from MIT. And and we found in the US that over the last 30 years, three quarters of jobs have become more age-friendly in the sense that you had more flexibility over scheduling, uh, less physical work, less stress, uh, more autonomy. And actually, this has benefited not just older workers, but lots and lots of other workers as well. But jobs have become more age flexible. And I think that will help us maintain productivity for longer, which will support higher productivity in the economy and higher total lifetime productivity, even if possibly our lifetime average may go down. So there's there's a shift towards knowledge jobs and the rest of it. And I can see that somebody with my skill set, for example, has more flexibility than somebody who is, say, a manual worker. AI is going to, you know, change the whole balance of everything. Plug in AI into your work and, and what do you see? So there's huge uncertainty, isn't there, about AI? I, my take on AI is as, as follows. I think actually it's going to be helpful for longer careers extent to which there will be jobs because you know you think about the ai and robotics it takes away a lot of the physical work and some of the 
remembering of things. And that's going to, already we're seeing robots supporting older workers in manufacturing because they can do the more physical things. And also, I think we will start to see, you know, as machines get better at being machines, humans have to get better at being more human. And that's kind of a very simple way of putting it. And humans actually aren't very good at spreadsheet calculations. Machines are better at that. So human empathy, EQ, et cetera, I think will be better. And there's some evidence that suggests that older people have got more of those empathy, less egotistical than younger workers. So in some sense, I think we're going to see technology actually having an interesting shift. And to the extent it's about emotional intelligence rather than just academic intelligence, that may also be helpful from an inequality, pers- inequality perspective. I mean, I've been enough faculty meetings to know that IQ and EQ aren't always necessarily the same thing. So I, I think that could be a positive. Uh, and there, there'll certainly be positive thing around healthcare. But no, I mean, clearly, though, that's about assuming that there are our jobs. But I think you tapped into about inequality, which I think is a really big challenge. And going back to the age-friendly jobs research that I did, what we found was in particular male non-college educated workers were losing out because they tended to be in construction, manufacturing, jobs that were not very age-friendly, hadn't become much more age-friendly. And so if they're going to carry on working for longer they're going to have to get out of those sectors. And that's a, that's a tough transition. So, you know, we, we've got to think about how we support transitions to help people into different roles. And obviously, the more skills you've got, the more education qualifications you've got, the more money you've got, the more health you've got, the more options you've got, the easier that is. So, yeah, we're back again to this nuanced labour market policy of who do we focus our attention on and helping. And, you know, this also comes back to things like healthy life expectancy, because if you have been doing a hard physical manual job, your healthy life expectancy, your life expectancy is not the same as a university professor. So we really have to allow for that heterogeneity. So it's incredibly uncertain what's going to happen to us, how long we're going to live. How do you plan financially for that? Yeah, I, I think I think it's going to be one of the really big issues because, you know, we can't know for sure how long we're going to live for one, two reasons. One is... You know, there's an average, but people die many years after that and below it. And the second is that we may see further increases in life expectancy. So you've got huge uncertainty. And, you know, the, the big shift that's happened is in the 20th century, there was a high risk of dying in middle age. So we developed life insurance, which was to say your family would be secure if you die early. Now the big worry is you outlive your health, your wealth, and your relationships. So we kind of need living insurance. And I think we're going to see a huge financial sector grow, just as we saw with life insurance, trying to help you deal with that risk. But I think it's it's, it's more than that, too, because you've got to start thinking, well, okay, how do I deal with the risk of, you know, I might need to work till I'm 70, but I lose my job at 50. I lose my health at 60. So there's lots and lots of imponderables here. And I think you know, for me, there's two ways to solve that. One is to think about your investment across many assets, not just your money. Because the, the way you really solve financial risk living longer is being able to work for longer. And then that means you've got to be a job that you can work for longer in, that you want to work for longer in, and is manageable. So how do you construct your career to make sure you've got that as an option? Then it's investing in your health and your relationships so that you can always find something else to do. So it's about keeping options open and investing in a broader range of assets because there is no way we can answer the question, how long do you need to work for? How long will you live for? And how long will you be in good health? So these are some of these really big new imponderables that have long, longer lives give us that we need to find solutions for. 
And now that the artificial three ages are breaking down, everything to play for and even more uncertainty in the way we regard these things. It is. And of course, we'll come up with financial products and we'll find career paths. But there's a lot of social innovation that needs to happen because I mentioned earlier about teenagers and pensioners. They didn't come fully formed. It took a while to work out what do we do with these new ages? What how do we and we saw whole new industries develop around it. And I think we're still at that early stage. So it'll take a while. But I think you can see that change already happening. Well, absolutely fascinating. We've talked a long while and we like to finish our podcast with just a couple of quick fire questions. So if you're up for that. Yeah, go away. Fire away, yeah. So if you hadn't been an economist, what would you have liked to have been? Or would like to be now? Well, it's a multi-stage life, so I've still got many careers ahead of me. Uh, I think I won't be ever playing professional football. I always liked films. I think I'd love to have done something like film directing. I think that'd be fascinating. And as you get older, what would you like to spend more time doing? Um, well, I think, so Laura Carstensen from Stanford has some great research on why older people are happier. And she basically sort of says they're better at finding, avoiding the things that cause them grief and focusing on the things that give them pleasure. And I'm all over that. I'm still trying to find out what they are, but that's basically what it is. But although one of the things I am doing is trying to keep fit and healthy. So a lot more exercise I, I do, which I kind of enjoy most of the time. Yeah, it's, it's a burden, but it's a blessing. <laughs> what uh, one piece of advice would you give to listeners of our podcast? Yeah, so whenever I talk about longevity, I'm always asked about advice and it, and it to eat bright coloured vegetables, all that sort of stuff comes in. I, I think it's really very simple, which is that if you look at these demographic trends, we've all got more time ahead of us than past generations. So we need to age differently. We need to do things differently from the past. And because you have got more future, you need to invest more in your future self. What does your future self want? It's very hard to know, isn't it? But you do know that it's going to like to have health, good relationships, options and, uh, and money. So you know, just make a friend of your future self and think about how you can give your future self some of those things. But the other thing I think it's important about longevity is to recognise it because we're ageing differently. It's not just about giving your future self something. It goes in both ways. Your future self can give you something today. And if we have got more time, you can use some of that time now. On that very positive note, thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fascinating. Thank you, Janet. Enjoyed it. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Ward. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.